Good morning. We will um, continue our study at one of the most exciting times in church history, and that is um, this time period between the 1500, the early 1500s, where we have the Protestant Reformation. We, when we think of the Protestant Reformation, we think of Martin Luther, and um, Martin Luther is a key figure that we need to consider. We did that last week. But one person doesn't make a revolution or even a reformation. It, it requires a whole lot of people. And in fact, that's what God was doing. He was working in more than just Martin Luther's heart in different places of Europe. Um, it was, this was a movement that was designed by God to bring people back to at least three main conclusions um, about spiritual things. Number one, God is sovereign in history and in salvation. Luther saw this. We're going to see that Calvin and Zwingli saw this as well. Secondly, salvation is by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone, not as a result of works. This was something that was lost for, for ages, for, for decades. And this was now recovered as they started to study the Scripture more carefully. And then thirdly, uh, another conclusion that comes out of the Reformation is that the Bible is the supreme and final authority for matters of faith and life. Um, And so these insights that Luther had were shared by some other men and women across Europe. And uh, that's what we're going to look at today. Um, Now, we're going to focus on these other two characters, Zwingli and Calvin, but we have to recognize that there are countless people throughout Europe who also were being changed by these truths that come from the Scripture. And so we should acknowledge that um, that uh, God was ultimately behind this and that we should not just make heroes out of these three, three, three guys in the sense that, that no one else was involved. Um, now, part of the um, the beauty of how God worked this whole thing out was the printing press had just been developed about 50 years earlier, 1450s. And um, so now things were able to be mass-produced and sent out to, to lots of different areas. And this is how a lot of uh, Luther's writings, Calvin's writings, were spread throughout that region and, and how more and more people were able to see that you know what the the ultimate authority is not in the Catholic Church and not in the Pope. It's actually in in the Scriptures, and uh, so that was helpful for for that movement going forward. Let's begin with a word of prayer, and we'll look at uh, beginning with Ulrich Zwingli. Father, we are uh, grateful to come here today and consider um, how you have correlated the things of the past in order to um, help people then to understand what was most important when it comes to spiritual things, that that Your Word is at the center of what we should be as believers and as churches, that it should be the thing that guides us. It is not an antiquated document in the sense that it was just written a long time ago and doesn't have any application or relevance for today. But in fact, it is relevant because it was written by You, an infinite God. 
And so we can count on it and we can trust in it as being a trustworthy document. And we look forward to how you're going to uh, show us even today in this these historical um, pictures, how you have worked in people in the past to show them uh, where they ought to go. And, and we pray that you'd help us to be able to gain wisdom from having uh, looked at their example, looked at their mistakes, looked at their their victories, and we pray that as a result our church would be more equipped to serve you. pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, there was this Reformation in, in, um, in Germany, in Wittenberg, where uh, Luther was, but there's also a Reformation in Zurich. And uh, Zurich was about halfway between Wittenberg and Rome, and uh, it was in the country of Switzerland. When we think of Switzerland today, we think of fine watches and chocolates, del- del- uh, delicious chocolates, and also uh, a political neutrality. But much of Switzerland's roots are tied to the Reformation. Now, Switzerland is said to have come into existence in the early um, early fourth or fifth century, but but really, it starts to gain its reputation, its its uh, identity here with Ulrich Zwingli. Um, if we take Luther, Zwingli, and Calvin as the three leading reformers, it is both amazing and not coincidental that Calvin and Zwingli conducted their reforms in Switzerland. Um, born in 1484, Zwingli was a contemporary of Luther's generation. Um, Luther was born, if you remember, in 1483, so they were born around the same time. Um, Zwingli became ordained to the priesthood in 1506 and soon began to study Scripture. And he did it independently of the church because he felt that the church was becoming more and more corrupt. We talked about how that, uh, how the church had been infiltrated with corruption throughout those dark ages of church history. Zwingli had had heard uh, about Wycliffe and Huss as well as Erasmus. Erasmus was particularly important to Zwingli in that um, he studied carefully the original sources. This is one of the things that that um, Erasmus was was uh, pursuing. He wanted to make sure that he got back to the original sources. Sometimes when we study things, we go back to what this person said about that, and this person said, and we get so far back from what the original said. That, that we don't really have a clear idea of what was actually said. So if this is a Scripture way back here, we have all these levels that we've missed what God has said because it's been changed. It's like the... Um, you probably played the secret game, or I'm not exactly sure what it's called, but you start with one person, you tell them a secret, and they tell it to the next person in the room, and then they tell it to the next person. By the time you get all the way to the end, the message is completely changed. And so what Erasmus taught was, I need to get back to what the original person said. Find out what he said, and that's going to be the closest to the truth. It's going to be the actual truth in the case of the Word of God. And so that's what Zwingli uh, followed him in that way. Okay, we're, we're listening to all these popes. We're listening to all this church tradition. But that's not really the closest to the truth. Let's get all the way back to the Scriptures. Um, so by 1516, the year before Luther posted the 95 Theses, okay, remember that was October 31st, 1517, Zwingli recalled that 
Um, he says, led by the Word and the Spirit of God, I saw the need to set aside all these human teachings and learn the doctrine of God directly from His own Word. That's what Zwingli said. So this is more than just a passing emotion. This is something that he was very serious about. In fact, he, he copied the... the um, he copied down in Greek all of Paul's epistles and then memorized them. Okay, so think of Paul's 13. Just think about doing that in English. That's quite a task to copy down all of his epistles. Just Romans alone is, is quite a task. And he, he not only copied them down, but memorized them, recognizing that the most important thing is God's Word. Okay, and I would encourage you that today that is still true. Okay. We, sometimes when we have a problem, the first place we go to is a book. We go to a book about someone who's who's written something about that. Books are very helpful. That people give uh, insights that that sometimes we don't see. But I would suggest to you the most important source for truth is the scriptures. All right. So that doesn't change. We, it's, it's not me as the pastor. Okay? It, it is the Scriptures. That's why you need to continually search the Scriptures daily to see if what I am saying is true. Having realized that the Bible is the supreme authority, Zwingli sought to apply this to his life and to the church. True Reformation, after all, springs not from one's uh, opinion or even one's social group, but from the Word of God. And so we can date the Reformation beginning uh, at least in Zurich, Zurich and to 1519, New Year's Day, 1519. So this is about 10 months before the 95 Theses, before Luther, um, Luther's famous debate there. Um, this new focus on the Bible and biblical doctrine soon brought attention as Zwingli realized he could no longer stay in communion with the Roman Catholic Church. Now, you remember this is different from or if you consider this is different from what Luther was thinking. Luther thought, we need to reform the Catholic Church. So he stayed inside of it and he tried to show them that, that we need to get back to the authority of the Scripture. We need to see that justification is not by works, but by faith alone in Christ alone, through grace alone. Um, but Zwingli just recognized that, that the Catholic Church was utterly corrupt. I need to remove myself from it. So the next year he renounced his salary from Rome and in October of 1522 he resigned as priest. Um, shortly after that, the Zurich City Council immediately hired him to be the city's official preacher. Um, and then uh, Zwingli's final break with Rome came a few months later in 1523. Here, uh, at this time, Zwingli presented 67 articles, which are theological points, similar to the 95 Theses. So, so now he comes up with 67 articles of points that he had composed to summarize his differences from Rome. So although he didn't see that he had any um, agreement with the Roman Catholic Church, in other words, to stay with it, he still wanted to show them where they had erred. Zwingli declared... Um, his council, the, the 600 Christians that had gathered together as, as a legitimate council and challenged the Catholic Church to refute or challenged the Christians to refute any of these Catholic bishops' points. So he was saying, it's not just me. Okay, I've got all these other people who agree with me 
And I'm coming to you before you, bishops of the Catholic Church in Rome. Um, I want to show you where you have 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 been mistaken. Um, so Zwingli's doctrine. Let's let's uh, move to Zwingli's doc- doctrine. Ulrich Zwingli affirmed the core doctrines of the Reformation. I mentioned a couple of them earlier. Salvation by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone, based on the Scripture alone, and to the glory of God alone. From here, Zwingli focused in particular on the fundamental distinction between the Creator and His creation. So he wanted to show that there was a a separation between God and man. And so he saw the idolatry that was going on in the Catholic Church and called it what it was. He said that was the most fundamental and heinous sin that the church had committed. It was idolatry. Ascribing to creatures what is due only to the Creator. And what kind of things would the Catholic Church at that time have ascribed to creatures that only God was worthy to receive? Can you think of anything? What what type of uh, what type of things are ascribed only to God that should only be ascribed to God? But the Catholic Church was saying actually these popes can receive this as well, or even the saints, the dead saints. Okay, veneration. You know what veneration is? It's just worship. Okay, so what Zwingli is saying is worship only belongs to God. Or yeah, prayer. There's all sorts of things. They were. He's trying to say, listen, God is up here. God is high and lifted up and and creatures are nothing in comparison to Him. They don't deserve worship. They don't deserve glory, honor, power in the sense that God does. They don't deserve to be prayed to. They can't be. That's idolatry. He he smelled the stench of idolatry as he would call it. And he was appalled at the rampant superstition of his day. Remember how we talked about last week how they would buy all these relics and icons and even if they would see some of these things, if they just saw like a, a strand of Mary's hair, supposedly, as they call her, Mary the mother of God, they, they saw a strand of her hair, that would give them some kind of grace. And so they turned their worship away from God to people or objects. It was very highly superstitious. And so thoughtless prayers, prescribed fasts, the bleached cowls and carefully shaved heads of the monks, holy days, incense, the burning of candles, the sprinkling of holy water, nuns' prayers, priests' chatters, vigils, masses, matins. This whole rubbish heat of ceremonials amounted to nothing but tomfoolery, as one scholar writes. To depend upon them at all for salvation was like placing ice blocks upon ice blocks. Zwingli recognized the failures of the church. And he wanted to show that to them and and pull away from that. So, he did more than preach against these rituals and objects. He, He actually worked to purge them out of the church. One distraught Catholic wrote to the emperor in 1530 and described the condition of Zurich's churches after Zwingli did this. He said, "...the altars are destroyed and overthrown." The images of the saints and the paintings are burned or broken up and defaced. They no longer have churches, but rather stables. 
Zwingli was trying to tear down all of these, we could call them like, like they're called in the Kings and the Samuels, high places, places where the, the people of God were supposed to be worshiping God. Instead, they would set up all, altars to false gods. He's tearing down all the high places in the church. Let's get rid of all these relics, these paintings that people are bowing down and worshiping. And after he came through, these church buildings were a wreck, as was described. So they recognized, he, he and Luther both recognized that there needed to be reform. Um, but they didn't agree on everything. Luther and Zwingli were not uh, in full agreement. Perhaps the most prominent of their disputes was the nature of the Lord's Supper. Luther had opposed the Catholic Mass because he saw it as a work as something that we are required to do in order to gain favor with God. But Luther still believed that Christ was present in the elements in the sense that the elements somehow turn into Christ before you eat them. Zwingli rejected this. He didn't just reject the Catholic Mass because... Um, it turned into a, a ritual or a means to receive God's justification or, or God's right standing, the right standing before God. But he, he rejected it because it was actually idolatrous, that we we're actually taking and, and re-sacrificing Christ all over again, which Hebrews says uh, is unnecessary and um, because with the Old Testament sacrifice, you had to come day after day and there had to be multiple deaths. But with Christ, He was the final sacrifice. No longer do we have to to uh, sacrifice Him. Uh, he was the the perfect sacrifice, the once for all. So, so Zwingli differed from Luther in this way. He saw uh, the Lord's Supper as only a memorial, okay, a, a remembrance. That's why we have that phrase on the front of our uh, Lord's Supper table. Do this in remembrance of Me. That's what Jesus talked about. He said to do it in remembrance of Me. It's not something to, that we have to re-sacrifice Christ. Um, his, his sacrifice is sufficient once for all. We're simply remembering what Christ did for us. Well, this provo- provoked a bitter dispute between them, between Zwingli and Luther. And... Uh, Zwingli wished that Luther would keep quiet so that they should have been forced to swallow their loathsome stuff, that is, the Catholic Church. And Luther called Zwingli seven times more dangerous than when he was a papist or a priest. They met in 1529 for a famous de- debate, but they failed to resolve their differences and parted in enmity, which they remained enemies to their death. So although the God was working in them, both to see that the Bible is the supreme authority, that salvation comes by by faith alone in Christ alone, um, and these other things, they still did disagree on many things and uh, were not able to settle them. Zwingli also differed with Luther over uh, what could t- take place in Christian worship gatherings. Luther argued that if the Bible does not reject it, then we can include it in worship. So we can do whatever the Bible that whatever is not rejected in the Bible. Okay, so let's say, um, let's just make up an example of uh, a carnival. Okay, so we want to worship God with a carnival. Our actual worship service is going to have uh, carnival games. Luther would say, 
Well, the Bible doesn't say anything about not having them in worship so we can have them. Zwingli disagreed. He said that only we can only include in worship what God has prescribed, what He has said that there should be in worship. Okay, so that means we go to Acts chapter 2 and see things like prayer. We include prayer in our worship. Singing to one another in psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs, songs Paul says. Okay, preaching of the Word. The Lord's Supper, baptism, okay, fellowship. You have all these different things. And, and Zwingli was saying, or uh, yeah, yeah, Zwingli was saying, um, those are the things that should be included in worth, worship. Only the things. So that means that we can't have carnival games in worship services. We don't include anything that's not already prescribed in the Bible. Do you see the distinction? So if it's prescribed, we do it. Luther's saying. If, it's, if there's nothing that rejects what we want to do, we'll just do it. So he, he could include practically anything. And um, I think I hope you understand where we fall on that issue, that we only do what the Scriptures prescribe in our worship services. And uh, that's why we don't have things like drama when it comes to worship service. Now, you may disagree with me on that, but I, I don't think that that should be a part of worship. Now, now there is a helpful way that drama can help point us to the um, to the heart of a matter and help grab our heart in a way that some other things can't. But you're not going to find that sort of thing in Scripture. And so we're careful here to make sure that we include only things in our worship service that are prescribed in the Bible. Um, so that's uh, that's uh, that that was one of their other. Arguments. The other difference that they had was uh, with relation to the nation or the nature of the kingdoms, of the kingdom of man and the kingdom of God. One scholar writes, Luther's Reformation was born out of his his torturous quest to answer this question: How can I be saved? But Zwingli was more concerned with social and political implications. Zwingli's central question was: How can people, my people, be saved? And so Zwingli, think back to, to what happened when Zwingli pulled away from the church. What he did was he just gathered all the, the Christians in the area and, and uh, gathered them together in a political type of way. And um, because of that, Zwingli had a closer connection between the church and the state. He saw that those were, were very closely connected. Luther saw the the uh, the corruption that there was in the state, and he didn't want the church to be a part of that, and I think rightfully so. So they disagreed in that area as well. Um, Zwingli was a a very passionate man. He he was a nationalist. He cared very much about his country, and in fact, he joined uh, the Zurich army as chaplain. He took up armor and sword in a war against Catholic forces, even in 1531. October 11th, he died on the battlefield. And he said, his last words apparently were, you may kill the body, but you cannot kill the soul. So Zwingli brought a great amount of good to this period of time. He, he helped shape people's minds back to where it ought to be in several areas, but he also did have his flaws. Okay, he wasn't perfect, just like Luther wasn't perfect. None of these people are. No, uh, no uh, sinner is. Um, 
But but Zwingli's teaching actually came to influence a young Frenchman who was beginning to have his own problems with the Catholic Church, and his name was John Calvin. Any questions on Ulrich Zwingli or comments? France does not have the best international reputation, do they? Particularly from our side of the world. Perhaps you've heard the question, has anything good come from France? Well, if nothing else, nothing else, John Calvin's life should remind us that France has made significant contributions to our world. And hopefully by the end of this study of this man, you will see how important he was. John Calvin was born in Noyon, France in 1509. He was a very religious man, serious. He was very concerned about moral things. His father had originally intended that he would study theology, but then after having a falling out with the local bishop, he changed his mind and sent John to law school. Besides his legal studies, Calvin also worked hard to understand the classic works of philosophy and literature. And uh, so he had a background of of logic and uh, critical thinking, critical in a good way, where he's uh, trying to think if these things are accurate. And, um, And especially he had through this study, through this legal study, was to get back to the original sources. This is one thing that we commend Zwingli for highly. And so with this background, it naturally followed that Calvin, like his predecessors, Luther and Zwingli, would be drawn to the Bible. Now, why would he be drawn to the Bible? Okay, If he wants to study what's going on in the church, why would he want to be drawn to the Bible? Because it's the original source, right? He's going back to the original source. He doesn't have to study about all these... these um, Ancillary things, the main thing is is to study the Scriptures. Uh, that doesn't mean he does it to the exclusion of all those other things, but he understood that that was the primary source of authority. Um, so, later on, as he's studying the Scriptures, Calvin was converted. He, he, he says that he was subdued, that God subdued my heart to teachableness. Soon thereafter, he came under close scrutiny for his Protestant sympathies and King Francis I ordered his arrest for heresy. Um, In order to avoid imprisonment, he fled to Basel, Switzerland. Basel was a haven for refugees um, at this time. And it was there that Calvin published his first draft of what is his most famous work called The Institutes of the Christian Religion. This was written as a defense to the man who had ordered his arrest, the king of France. He wanted to write to him and show him why he believed the way that he did, that this was not heresy. And so he studied the Scriptures very carefully and wrote out this defense. Now, listen to the full title of this first edition. The Institute of the Christian Religion containing almost the whole sum of piety and whatever is necessary to know in the doctrine of salvation, a work very well worth reading by all persons zealous for piety and lately published, a preface to the most uh, Christian king of France in which the book is presented to him as a confession of faith. Quite a t- title for a book. He shortened the name because 
It wasn't selling very well on Amazon, apparently. Um, actually, the Institutes became a bestseller as soon as they were released. And Calvin was uh, to revise them and, and republish them uh, several times throughout his life. The completed one that we have today um, was finished in 1559. And it's been translated into English. And it, just to give you an idea of what it is, 1,800 pages. And he wrote this at the age of 26. And this is not just a flowery speech. This is deep doctrine. He, he basically has a, a theology, a systematic theology working through the areas of the Scriptures and how it applies to their current situation. Uh, he's writing this really as a letter to the King of France, but it ends up becoming widely spread as, as a great work of, um, of the, the Christian theology. Well, the city of Basel was German-speaking, so the young Frenchman eventually decided to go to Strasbourg, France. And again, to evade arrest, Calvin chose an indirect route, which took him to Geneva for a night. Uh, Another Protestant preacher, Will Farrell, had already planted himself in Geneva and began to stir up trouble against Rome, and he pushed for reform. In one scholar's description, Farrell arrived as a refugee from France, a fiery, red-bearded Elijah bellowing at the priests of Baal. Calvin was very serious about God's honor, God's glory. He wanted to make sure that the the false worship was done away with. Um, they, uh, they, the people there in Geneva wanted him to stick around. Calvin resisted, however, because he was convinced that his gifts and callings were to a contemplative, kind of quiet study type of life, more like a monk would would do. Um, Pharaoh then threatened Calvin. He said, May God condemn your repose and the calm you seek for study if before such a great need you withdraw and refuse your succor and help. Calvin later confessed that these words shocked and broke him, broke him and and he had assisted the journey that he had begun. So uh, Pharaoh convinced him to stay, and um, he stayed in Geneva, and as a result, the church there and worldwide would never be the same. Staying in Geneva meant that there was going to be theological strife, and during Calvin's first two years, he and Pharaoh fought with the city government over whether the church had the ability to excommunicate, to, to discipline out unrepentant sinners. The, the city magistrates, the leaders there, were, were not sympathetic to Calvin's desires for pure church membership because they found it to be too rigorous. They, they felt that they had the control over who was in the church. And so you have this conflict, and as a result, Calvin was expelled in 1538. They left from there. Calvin and Farrell both left from there uh, for Strasbourg, France. Uh, he spent three happy, productive years there where he married a widow um, and became a father of two children. In 1541, the Geneva authorities realized their mistake and they invited Calvin to come back. He didn't want to leave Strasbourg at that point. Remember, that was his original destination where he wanted to go. Um, but they compelled him to return, and, uh, and he did, and he stayed there for the rest of his life. Now, his first Sunday back in Geneva, after three years of being gone, Calvin 
preached from his old pulpit at the, the cathedral at St. Pierre. And his congregation was expecting him to come down on them and, and tell them why they were wrong and not uh, standing up for him. Instead, Luther, or excuse me, Calvin got up there and, um, and continued where he left off in his expositional preaching and um, finished off, or continued right where he left off three years earlier. And so Calvin showed in this that he was completely submitted to the Word of God, that he was not concerned about his own personal reputation over God's reputation. And so he just continued to preach through the Scriptures in this way. He, he continued a, a rigorous preaching schedule during his next 23 years. He preached two sermons from the New Testament every Sunday, one sermon from the Old Testament every day during the week or, or on alternate weeks. And when not preaching... Calvin kept up an extremely busy schedule of pastoring, counseling, teaching, corresponding with thousands of people ranging from kings and emperors to poor imprisoned Protestants. And he did this all, all uh, within the, the body that he had to live in, and that was a very uh, sickly body. He had a fragile body frame, and towards the end of his life, Calvin detailed a catalog of various ailments arthritis, kidney stones, fever, nephritis, which is kidney failure, severe indigestion. It says, whatever nourishment I take sticks like paste to my stomach. Colic and ulcers. But he rarely let these afflictions slow down his ministry, even reaching his last sermon by being carried to the pulpit and uh, uh, from his bed and to another bed that was that they had up there uh, on the pulpit. Under Calvin's pastorate in Geneva, every citizen was supposed to be under the moral discipline of the church. And while Calvin only hold the, held the office of minister, um, the church and state worked closely together to try to build this Christian utopian city where both the government and the church are one, okay, similar to what you had back in the 300s with Constantine. Um, during this time, Calvin became Geneva's dominant figure, influencing even education and commerce policies. Um, and though Calvin saw himself continually at odds with the council, he succeeded in part in forging a unified Christian community whose members were in good standing with the government. Well, Geneva became a haven for Protestants and a training ground for people who were learning these same truths about the Reformation and being able to be sent out throughout the rest of Europe. And so he sent out several missionaries to spread the gospel in a way that's consistent with the Scriptures. And they even sent people as far away as Brazil. Now one of the things that uh, perhaps you know about Calvin is towards the end of his life, one of the things that was is not very... Um, it's not a very uh, promising-looking episode. Um, this is um, during his time in Geneva. The um, a man who was a Spanish physician and a theological problem maker was a man by the name of Michael Servetus, and he had been stirring up trouble throughout all of Europe for his denial of the Trinity. He was arrested in Geneva 
tried, convicted, and burned at the stake. Now, while today we rightly understand a religious liberty and freedom to permit citizens to hold uh, heretical beliefs, in other words, if someone came into our church, held a heretical belief, we're not going to take them out and burn them at the stake. Okay? We don't have that authority. We're not the government. So someone can actually believe something other than us and still keep their life. Um, but in the 16th century, this was a person for a person to hold heretical beliefs was profoundly against civic order. That would actually go against uh, civic peace, governmental uh, peace within the government. How could a person be a good citizen while denying God's truth, they thought. So, it was ultimately the city council who brought about this man's death, but it was Calvin who ordered the execution. And while Calvin argued for the less painful death of beheading rather than being burned at the stake, Calvin did order the execution and agreed to it, um, just as almost every other Protestant in Europe did. But we have to remember, here's how one scholar uh, puts it. He says, These heresies that Servetus would have expiated at the stake in Catholic France uh, had he not escaped and paid the same penalty. In other words, he would have been burned at the stake in France had he not been burned at the stake in Geneva. So, that doesn't make it right, but the point is, is that this is just the way the society worked back then. Uh, we should not commend it in any way. We should not commend Calvin for this, um, uh, but neither should we um, judge him too harshly in the sense that this is the way that the culture worked at that time. Um, well, to put Calvin in context, with regard to um, to how he was viewed at that time, uh, we need to take a look at him with regard to his contributions to uh, our church today, our, our theology today. It was through Calvin and Luther and Zwingli that that the gospel was recovered. The goal for Luther was to determine what must I do to be saved? He tried to figure out what must I do to be saved. Zwingli, you remember, was trying to figure out what must my people do to be saved. And um, and so they're trying to answer these questions in a careful way. Calvin's basic questions were, who am I and who is God? And here, Calvin showed a, a, a very important um, and critical perception of the human nature. He believed that all human beings had in them a seed of religion. In other words, a need to worship something or someone. And so because we all have, we have all been made to worship, we've all been made to worship God, but because of our sin, we will either worship God or we'll worship an idol, is what uh, Calvin believed. And um, so Calvin's institutes his book there, the 1,800-page book that he wrote to the king of France, helped to, to explain some of these things. Um, his primary concern was not with what the church had done, with the tradition, that what the, pap- the Pope wanted. His primary concern was what the Scriptures said. And so Calvin saw God's glory 
most vividly in Christ's work in salvation. He saw Christ as our substitute, that Christ served as our mediator. He serves as our mediator. And that those who put their faith in Christ for their salvation could be sure um, that they would be secure in Him. And this is why Calvin came to focus on God's election. God's election and salvation. Not not as a way to be self-satisfied for His arrogant uh, or these arrogant and complacent Christians, but rather it was a personal concern to show that, that we absolutely rely on God, even in our salvation. And just who are the elect, according to Luther? Well, he would say that this cannot be known for sure. Um or or precisely by us. But he did believe that there are three measures to help guide us to those who were likely saved. Okay, as a church we can determine we can have an idea of who are saved. And here are his his three criterion. Number one, participation in the sacraments of baptism and the Lord's Supper. Okay, so if you want to see who the true believers are, see which ones have been baptized and are regularly participating in the Lord's Supper. Secondly, it, were the, it was the people who were living an upright moral life. And then thirdly, maybe this should have been first, a public profession of faith. So he, here, here are the people who he sees as, the, as truly elect. Okay, perhaps you've thought of of this before. You've seen somebody who's called themselves a Christian. You've you've talked to your neighbor or your family member who says, Oh yeah, I'm a Christian. I I've I've done this, this and this in the past, and yet their life doesn't seem to match the way the Christian should live. And so here's Calvin's, I think, very helpful criterion for who true Christians are. It is those who have made a profession of faith in Jesus Christ have followed the Lord in baptism and are participating in the Lord's Supper. Why do you think that's important? Why do you think it's important to participate in the Lord's Supper? Why do we do the Lord's Supper? Okay, we do it for remembrance. Okay, we're identifying ourselves with Christ. Remember, he says, in so doing, in eating this bread and drinking this cup, you proclaim my death until I come. Okay, one of the ways that we proclaim that we actually believe is not that we believed. Okay, Sometimes we put too much faith in our salvation experience. And there does need to be a salvation experience where we come to Christ. But sometimes we, we, we do this sort of thing. Okay, February 28, 1978. I know I'm saved because I got my date in the Bible. Okay, that's not how we know we're saved. and that's not, Calvin would not never point back to that. We have to have that time where we do come to Christ. But what he points to is okay, profession of faith in Jesus Christ. I've already identified with Him with my mouth. Now I've identified in baptism and now I'm continually identifying with Him the Lord's Supper. And then I also am identifying with Him by being changed by Him. I'm living a moral life. That was his third thing. Now, the reason that I think this is so helpful is because we have so many people that that claim to be Christian in our society, don't we? I mean, how many of your neighbors would say that they're not Christians or that they're not going to heaven? How many of your family members that are unbelievers would say that they're uh, would say that they're Christians? Almost all of them would, wouldn't they? 
And yet the, the true test is, are we participating in the Lord's Supper regularly and living a moral life? In order to participate in the Lord's Supper, what do we have to do? We have to come to church. Okay, It's something so basic but so critical to our spiritual life. To be a part of a, a church that puts God at the center. And um, if we're not doing that, that may be an indication of where we are spiritually. Now, the reason we can't know for sure is because we're not God. We can't ultimately see into a person's heart. So they could actually, uh, a person could actually deceive us, couldn't they? They could make a profession of faith. They could follow in baptism. And they could participate in the Lord's Supper. And on the externals, they could be, looks like they're living a moral life when really their heart's corrupt. Um, so we can't ultimately know. We can be deceived. But, but God knows. And this is a very helpful way to help help us to see um, who who the true believers are. And that's why we have things like church membership. Okay? We, we try to draw a line of distinction between who true members are, and uh, true believers are, and who unbelievers are. Okay? So we, we have church membership. In order to be a member of our church, you have to have made a profession of faith. You have to have been baptized. And you have to be in good standing with the church ongoing. So that means if you're not here for more than six months, our covenant, our our statement of faith, our covenant, excuse me, um, says that you cannot be a part of our church anymore. We remove you from the rolls. You are an inactive member. You're not concerned about spiritual things. And so we can no longer give testimony to your faith. We We can't verify that you're a true believer if you're not here, right? So if you stop coming to church for six months, how do I know that you're not living in sin? You need to be a part of the local church. Now, perhaps I'm speaking to the choir, but um, but that's why there's such an important um, there there's such a important promotion here at our church of being a part of the body. It's not enough to simply say that we're Christians. We need to to be a part of it. And by the way, that's the way that change happens. That's why the way this last thing takes place, this moral this moral life is by being a part of a church, being under the hearing of God's Word. And so we, um, we work hard to do that. All right, any questions or comments on uh, Zwingli and Calvin? Or, or anything else? Yeah. Mm-hmm. 
Yeah, the real um, the real test is: Are we being changed? Are we a part of a church, and are we being changed? And that's why Calvin takes those things seriously—not just professor, like Bill saying here, but also a possessor. And the way that we see that is how it's being lived out. Part of the Lord's Supper, growing in our our um, pursuit of godliness. That means that you know it doesn't mean that we're perfect, but that we're we're um, we're becoming more and more moral, more and more like Jesus Christ. Anything else? Quickly? All right. Thank you for your attention. We're going to pray and we'll be dismissed. Father, we thank You for uh, these men. We pray You'd help us to think about them rightly in relationship to Your Word. Um, we would not hold them up in too high of regard in the sense that we venerate them like men before did the popes, but that we would... Um, recognize that they, like us, have failures, they have inconsistencies, they're not perfect in their theology, but but they um, <clears throat> hopefully are also like us in the sense that they were men of faith. <clears throat> I pray that you would help us to, um, to work hard to be like those in Hebrews 11 who simply walked by faith, not by sight. And, uh, and that means that we have to set aside uh, tradition in some cases in order to seek what the Scriptures teach. And, um, and sometimes that's difficult to do, and yet we know that Your Spirit works through Your people. Help us to overcome uh, our own sin by confessing and forsaking it, and also to um, overcome our own weaknesses through the power of Your Word and through Your Spirit as He leads us. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.